You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Road. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. David Robertson returns to set the record straight on battles in the third installment of our set review. We look at best-in-class one-drops, new infinite combos, and controversial praetors. This is part three of our Brewer's Guide to March of the Machine. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson, coming to you from the Twin Cities, and I am joined by the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. He is Caved In Online, Dr. Daniel Schriever. Dan, the man, what is going on, my friend? I'm doing great, David. It's good to see you. Good to be here with the original Pioneer Brewmaster. <laughs> March Madness has just ended. Hopefully everybody's uh, brackets were successful, and now it is uh, time for spring to arrive in Minnesota. I think it's going to be 66 degrees this Saturday. Everyone will be <laughs> probably just shirtless dudes running down my street and ladies in sports bras. It's going to be a magical time. My God. <laughs> 66, that sounds like a dream. We haven't seen 66 since like the coldest day of January here. <laughs> we had uh, 10 inches of snow on Friday <laughs> and then it's going to be 66 next weekend. So, you know, it's the end of the world. All right. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, David, a lot to get through. It's all business today, all business. This is our third installment now of our March of the Machine preview show. And I successfully said March of the Machine without pluralizing it for the first time. Congratulations to me. You just got to call it mom, right? Exactly. Call your mother. Would it kill you to call your mother? Would it kill you? How's your mother? Now, David, you were not on the first two installments. I talked to Mord. I talked to Lawson Zandy. I would like to hear your take on the mechanics. So I'm going to ask you about that. And then we've got a good chunk of cars to get through. I think by now we've got almost all of the set. We're just missing maybe a couple draft commons. So I think we have a pretty complete picture. Although we say that knowing a lot of times the last dump just randomly has <laughs> Delver of Secrets or... <laughs> Death Ride Shaman. There's been a few absolute yes. bangers just like, oh yeah, I guess this card needs to get banned in a few formats. These are the cards that, you know, they got picked last. <laughs> Nobody assigned them to a content creator to get previewed, but yeah, they can still shine. All right, so that's the order of business for today. Just nonstop cards. Before we dive in, just a little housekeeping right at the top. A reminder that if you enjoy this program and would like to show us some support, you can go to patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. You can make a pledge at any tier you like that can be a dollar a show. Gets you immediate access to our Discord channel, as well as other perks. We have merch, we have tokens, we have stickers, we have amazing playmats. And we do have two new patrons that we would like to welcome this week. They are Manuel G and Andrew H. Thank you. Thank you very much to those two individuals and welcome to the Faithless family. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, welcome aboard. It is brewing season because when people see new cards, their mind begins to fire with the possibilities. And, you know, the format gets calcified at this time of year as uh, that we find out which new cards are actually good and bad. And this is the moment where nobody knows, right? And uh, people will finally look back and say, oh, I already, this, how could they have printed this broken card? And, you know, right now it's being dismissed. So this is a great time to be on the Discord. There's lots of uh, ideas kicking around. Uh, yeah, and a big welcome to our new Two Nose patrons. It's a place of beautiful ignorance, and nobody knows anything right now, so you'll be right at home. All right, David, March the Machine. We have four new mechanics. The biggest one is battle, and I just want to ask you right at the top, what do you make of battles? How should we evaluate them? Yeah, I mean, for me, battles are a pretty big miss. I really think, and we've talked a little bit about this from a game design perspective, Every time you add complexity, you are, you know, asking a lot of the players, you're asking a lot of your sort of game engine, as it were. And I think what you get back for the added complexity of battles is so far not worth it. It's also kind of funny the way that they talk about battles, like, oh, this amazing concept we had, we just couldn't deal with it with normal card types. And it's like, oh, okay, so what does your battle do? Oh, it rummages and makes a treasure. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess you did have to invent a whole new card type. There's no way we could have <laughs> possibly had that uh, turn into a 3-4 that, it, you know, whatever, does some minor thing when it comes into play after that. <laughs> oh, it uh, it uh, <laughs> makes two one ones. It's like, yep, <laughs> no, no card in the history of magic has ever been able to really accomplish what you're describing. <laughs> You feel like unlocking the backside of the magic card was just a mistake. That we should have never gone there, and we see that more and more. Well, I, I like unlocking the backside of magic cards, and I think the dual face cards have given them a lot of space for design, and I think that's why we see a ton of uh, dual face cards. We talk a lot about the increased complexity because there's lots of words on the card, and I think that's reasonable, right? We're really deep into magic's history. Uh, uh, the first set was, what, 1994? Or it, it just had its 30th anniversary, so we're in year 31. The reason they've been able to, I think, keep innovating is because they've basically doubled the real estate on which they can write <laughs> rules, text, uh, write random abilities. Um, there is a you know gentle power creep, which there's that's very healthy, I think. So all those things are fine. I don't know that they needed to add a whole new card type. Um, and in general, like the cards themselves just look kind of ugly to me. Um, I think they exacerbate play-draw dynamics, and I know they've really struggled with that. You know, Planeswalker is a new type they added. Saga is a type of enchantment that they've sort of slowly phased out Planeswalkers for, and Battles. And I think these are all cards, despite their best efforts, that really, really, really exacerbate play-draw dynamics. You know, Fable reminds me a lot of... Fable with Mirror Breaker reminds me a lot of 4-Mana Gideon. The card is so much different on the play versus the draw. And... um Battle is, is another card that does that, right? It's if you can play a battle and attack it right away because you already have a creature in play or a battle and a removal spell or a battle that is a removal spell. Um, it's just so much better than being on the draw and playing your battle with, without anything on the board or, or having to play something reactively. So, and in general, I don't think they're very powerful. So I think we'd like, we, we invested all this extra um, complexity I think we exacerbated play draw dynamics, maybe in standard, for cards that I don't think are going to see a lot of play in uh, Pioneer or Modern uh, or, or Legacy or, or Vintage, if, if you're going to make me <laughs> speculate about formats I don't know very much about. The bar for seeing play in Modern or Pioneer just keeps getting higher all the time. So I think that that's fine. But in terms of how powerful are they, 
what do you make of my contention that, okay, I pay two or three mana up front, and eventually I get all this stuff, right? I don't know how long it's going to take, but I will eventually get all this stuff. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that like an attractive card worth doing? Yeah, I mean, I think you guys were very right that these cards are hard to rank in terms of actual power. Um, the The concern I have is that, again, this is a mechanic that only really benefits Battlecruiser Magic. So what happens a lot is your opponent's playing a tempo game and you're playing a mid-range game. And what happens is, okay, at some point you're at six and you're you're trying to stabilize and your opponent is at 18, right? And you haven't been able to attack and they've taken damage from their land. Normally your ability to attack doesn't do anything, right? That can take six damage, just puts them to 12 and you've got one less blocker. This actually rewards you. This rewards that mid-range deck by having a random thing that you get now. You can attack your uh, battle and get your benefits because their life total doesn't matter. You're basically generating a bunch of games sort of like the Omnath deck where life total doesn't matter. You're not trying to win the game that way. You're just trying to eventually win, you know, by a million. The, the, the math of the combat race is uh, is kind of undone. I actually think that's kind of a bad <laughs> thing to do. I, I think these games with Omnath where it sort of like renders the combat step like weirdly meaningless in certain ways. Like, all right, the race is off. I actually have to like just individually combat each of their resources or I can never win. Um, and it's a lot more tolerable in modern because you do have ways to do that, right? You just <laughs> play a primeval Titan or whatever. And it's like, all right, you gain 12 life, but like you, you are dead. Uh, or I can name a, a half a dozen other archetypes in, in modern that kind of go over the top of that kind of thing. But Pioneer doesn't really have those tools. So will that, will that see play? Will it exacerbate the fact that like standard is a mid-range grind fest is maybe just a mid-range grind fest Actually, the best that standard can be, the, the fact that we haven't actually had to ban a card in a long time is maybe a sign that this is the only way that they can really balance the format is to just have a bunch of different flavors, let white draw cards, make an artifact like Bankbuster that gives card draw uh, accessibility to every archetype. And maybe that maybe that is what it is. But in general, I think these cards are going to see play uh, in standard because standard is full of mid-range decks and your life total really doesn't matter. Like mono white just has a bunch of one ones that eventually it pumps up with its planeswalker. It's like, yeah, on the way to killing them, why not just like get another random effect from a battle that you played, you know, on turn two or five or whatever. Hmm. Okay. So I hear that you're not loving it from a design perspective. You're skeptical as to whether this is a desirable play pattern. We'll see how that plays out. Is there anything that you would like to add about the other mechanics, specifically backup convoke or incubate? I like all the other three. I think Incubate is really cool. I think they keep doing interesting things with uh, game objects. The fact that Incubate, you know, when we compare it to Clue or Food or whatever, uh, it always gives you a chance to insist that blood is better than it is, which is great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> incubate is modular, right? So it doesn't do the same thing each time. So, okay, maybe a 2-2 is worse than a, the clue, than a Clue or worse than a Food. What about a 4-4? <laughs> it's, it's still the same mana to sacrifice. Uh, what about a six six? Um, it interacts with proliferate. I think I think the the design of incubate is very clever. Um, it gives control decks like random ways to end the game, which is which I like. It's like all right, you've you've fundamentally won, but now just like do twenty damage. It gives them a way. I'll let you do that. I really love uh, backup. I think it's really underrated. Um, I, mm. I think it actually. Again, I, I don't think the format in in standard is going to be tempo oriented enough for it to matter, but. I think that in Pioneer, weirdly, the games are much more fast and much more cutthroat. And, and so I think 
the fact that it lets creatures get in or not is actually going to be a huge uh, difference. Uh, you've highlighted some like very efficient cards that do very kind of tricky things. And you and Lawson talked about the uh, red one. I think these are just like cards that are going on the radar. No one's talking about them. They're talking about like these joke combos. It's like, I think this is just fine to play on rate. Um, and you and I, of course, love Convoke. Any cost reduction mechanic is always interesting. There haven't basically been any playable Convoke cards other than Green, Green, Green X, you know, tutor a combo piece, basically. Yeah. Um, I don't know that any of these cards will do it, but it like it just really that's the one like brewing mechanic in the whole set, it feels like to me. Uh you have to like build a deck of individually weak cards with all these synergistic pieces, and then can you make them pay off enough times? Um so yeah, it's a way for you and I to incinerate a bunch of tickets. I, I think it's a it's a, a cost reduction mechanic that hasn't been miserably broken, which is something they've really struggled with. And it encourages you to play to the board, which is another uh, thing that I like. Yeah, having seen more of the set now, the Convoke cards, they look so good to me. They look so amazing. And I would say the same for the Incubate cards, and that tells me that I'm probably overrating both. That Convoke is probably just harder to set up than I think, and that Incubate is slower than I think. But I accept the challenge on both counts, you know? Yeah, you guys spent a lot of time talking about the Seed Shark. I, that's my number We'll get to it on our next uh, episode, but that's my number one card to brew with. And looking at it, it seems so powerful. And you were outlining a bunch of lines that, again, they just, you had the lines I didn't even thought of that seemed powerful. I had lines that you had mentioned that seemed very powerful. It can't be as good as we think it is, or they wouldn't have made it a rare, right? So, like, we probably just have it wrong. And we know that the designers are very good players and they recruit very mm. good players. So, like, they've, they've run through these games, right? And, and they've, you know, whatever. <laughs> they've cast the, uh, the white enchantment on, on turn four, uh, you know, and gotten their 6 6 thing, and it hasn't ruined the game. Uh, so, yeah, it must just play out worse than we think. But man, it, it just seems awesome. <laughs> it seems so sweet. Yeah, but we we love game objects. We have a history. We have a history of loving game objects, right? We've, oh yes. We were playing Thraven Inspector in Modern like long after the <laughs> closing time on that play had been. Oh yes, I've got a card coming up here that has been described as the Black Voldaren Epicure. So this this set is perfect. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this right, has exactly. All. <laughs> all right. Well, with all that out of the way, how about we just get onto the cards? Let's do it. All right. Back again at one mana. Will we ever get to the five and six mana cards? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> but I mean, to BH, they're, they're all pretty bad. But these one drops are good. We got a couple of backup one drops right at the top. Tell me about these Scornblade Berserker. Yeah, Scornblade Berserker, black for an 01 human Berserker, backup one. So when this comes into play, it can put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature. And then it gives that creature the following ability, in this case, singular, until the end of turn. So that ability is one, sacrifice this creature, draw a card. So I had missed this card in the spoiler. I did not see it until I just looked at this like half an hour ago. I love this card, and you, of course, love this card. Oh, yes. This moves stuff from one zone to another. <laughs> it's a cheap creature. It's probably amazing in draft, Like, but this card is actually good. Like, If, if a Dan Shriver card is liked by me, it must almost be broken. <laughs> <laughs> This card just seems great to me. It seems so good. All right. So one drop, human type line, total of one power, two toughest and stats, but you get to distribute that how you like. It self-sacrifices. It can let you sacrifice something else, but that's within a very specific window of time, right? The backup only lasts for one turn. So if you want to sacrifice that other creature, you have to do it on the same turn that you played the Scorn Blade Berserker. 
not sure if we should be looking at that. Um, if we should be specifically trying to like look for things that benefit from gaining the ability to self-sacrifice. Yeah, you've got some cards highlighted. I love your recommendation of Unlucky Witness. I like your recommendation of Shambling Ghast. Uh, I would mention just any one drop that gives you extra stuff. Uh, Gilded Goose. Hmm. Um, Thraven Inspector. Uh, Voldar and Epicure itself. I have a card highlighted here. Uh, Archfiend's Vessel, turn one. This turn two, Sacrifice Vessel. Turn three, get it back with Extraction Specialist. Extraction Specialist is also, I think, very good. With Scornblade Berserker, sort of like a mini aspirant. We won't sacrifice it, but just oh. making our 3-2 lifelink a 4-3 and then bringing back an 0-1 that can sacrifice itself to draw a card in the future. So, like, I've been experimenting probably in an unhealthy amount, as as we all know, with these sort of black-white extraction specialist uh, aspirant type of decks. You know, I built an Esper list that's very close to sort of the legend shell people have started to play without all the good legends cards, basically. Um this is a card that fits perfectly into that shell. This this card seems tailor-made for that. The, the, a lot of the lines you're outlining seem really good here. I really love that it's a one-drop. I basically never want to play on one. Um, it's like a two-drop that immediately draws me a card <laughs> hmm. and threatens to sacrifice itself in the future and draw a card. So it just like flies through your deck to find these soft synergies, which you obviously want to play a lot of soft synergies if you're playing cards like this, which are low in terms of like quote-unquote power level, but are super high in synergistic power level. It was pointed out to me in our Discord that this is actually the first time that we get access to put a plus one plus one counter on a creature for this cheap of an effect. Seems like a simple thing that should have existed before, and this is actually the first card that does it. And there's a second card that has almost the exact same stat line. It's Enduring Bond Warden. This is a single white human scout. Backup one, zero one, so exact same stats as the Scorn Blade Berserker. Enduring Bond Warden has the text, when this creature dies, put its counters on target creature you control. So you can just put the counter on itself. That's always an option with backup. And you get a 1-2 that is a human that will pick up counters from whatever you're playing, Luminarch Aspirants, Thalia's Lieutenants, and then at some point later can pass its counters along to another creature. Or it can drop a counter on something else, something that you're ready to attack with and force a trade with, and then when they have to kill it, you'll be benefiting from moving those counters around as well. So again, we see the, the same templating. This is the cheapest possible backup creature. What do you make of this one? Yeah, I mean, it just seems terrible to me. Like, all those lines are fine. They just seem so underpowered. Like, it's missing the key magical three words here. Draw a card. <laughs> I mean, I putting a plus one plus one counter on something is not that powerful. That just inherently isn't that good, right? If if they fail to kill your Luminarch Aspirant the first turn it triggers, you haven't won the game. I mean, you, you can lose a million games where it's done that. This does it one time. It has a base power of zero, so it, it represents no threat itself. Um, as a one-two, if you play it turn one, if it dies, there's nothing to put the counter on. We already have multiple one-drops that have kind of this effect. They come and play with a, a plus one, plus one counter, and when they die, um, the counter transfers. There's a one-mana artifact that does it. I think there's a one-mana green creature from Strixhaven. Um, so, like, that inherently we know isn't good enough. So, I think this is probably a card that's really cool and limited, but it's, like, when I have access to Scornblade Berserker, it just seems like, Berserker seems like 50 times better than this. It, hmm. I mean, Berserker's going to draw me two cards every time I, it's almost like a, What's the band card from Strixhaven? 
what expressive iteration this is express this is a black expressive iteration uh <laughs> oh my god okay and it might get your creature through like you pump up your thraven inspector so they can't block it hit them sack and thraven inspector draw sack this later draw extraction specialist it back so my extraction specialist can like attack into whatever big creature they have in play sack scornblade bird berserker again draw <laughs> I mean, I love all those lines. I just think that you're you're being needlessly harsh on the enduring bond warden. I mean, the Scornblade Berserker makes us spend the mana to sack our own creatures, whereas the bond warden, you know, it, it just fits very naturally into aggro. It forces the opponent to spend their resources killing our creatures, and then we get paid back with some counters that, while it's not a card, it's something. So I think these are actually pretty close. I'm intrigued by if we can find some synergy with both of them. I mean, we have eight of this effect now at one mana, both with a human type line. Yeah, there is the two mana vampire that rewards you for getting plus one plus one counters. Now that does not go in the humans deck, mm-hmm. um, which is I think maybe the only place where the enduring bond warden would go. But just having another card that can pump your two two and, and draw a card, which is what I want to do. <laughs> I don't want to make my creature plus one plus one bigger. I want to draw a card. Uh, this then like we've kind of built our own <laughs> berserker <laughs> from our white, mediocre white cards. All right, the next card up is the Black Voldaren Epicure. <laughs> that is what I'm going to keep calling it. <laughs> I've also seen it compared, this is in our Discord, of course, <laughs> to Lingering Souls. <laughs> so David, please do the honor to tell us about the Icker Drinker. Icker Drinker, black mana for another 1-1 one, one creature, Phyrexian Vampire, lifelink. No other <laughs> text relevant to combat. <laughs> black mana, exile Icker Drinker from your graveyard, incubate 2. Activate only as a sorcery, which is actually kind of a big deal. Um, so yeah, you play it as a one, one, maybe you strap it up with counters, uh, from your <laughs> other random one ones and, um, eventually they kill it or you sacrifice it or whatever. And then from your graveyard for three mana, you get a two, two. Well, specifically you get an incubator token for one mana. Now that is potentially worth more than the creature itself, right? If you're trying to set up some kind of improvised thing, right? We love Herald of Anguish. We love Metallic Rebukes. Uh, we love Melkator. I loved bringing back my combat couriers to get that third artifact. So I'm interested in even just skipping the battlefield stage. Like, we don't have mm. to put the Eager Drinker into play first. We can just discard it or mill it. And then we have this free game object that maybe it's a creature, maybe it's not. How much is the game object worth? Well, if we really love game objects, if we really want to play Deadly Dispute... Now, both halves of the Icar Drinker are contributing to that plan. Uh, it's very versatile. Yeah, I think the mill line must be more relevant because we already have the Ghast, which um, makes a treasure token, which I think is better in general than Incubate 2. So if you just want a game object, that it does it immediately for no mana. Um, but milling this is something you can do uniquely uh, with this one drop that you cannot do with Ghast. LA 1-1 who is an expert at all these sack decks. He's the person who put Blood Tithe Harvester on the map in Pioneer. He has called this his favorite card from the set. Uh, he's also highlighted there's there's a functional reprint of Village Rights called Corrupted Conviction. It's the exact same card. And mm-hmm. he says that that's actually relevant for you know decks that want tons of copies. And he says he would play as many as 12 copies of that effect in a deck. So if that's a thing, which again, I, I will just take his word for it at this point. Uh, maybe Icar Drinker is part of that conversation as well. Yeah. And I mean, maybe you even want eight effects, right? For Icar Drinker, for Ghast. I will just say like, 
if you've ever played Ghast on the play, and then they play Mana Elf, and you sack Ghast and actually gets to kill a creature as a cantrip, I mean, that is an insane uh, sequence that these other cards can't quite match, so... Uh, it's true. I guess I'm just personally like less interested in having these one ones in place. So I, I want to skip directly to the exactly. So that's what I'm saying is the the mill line you're describing may, yeah. gives this card whatever the Dan Shriver best in class. Like no other card <laughs> sure. does what you're describing, sure. right? It, it goes to the graveyard and it immediately creates something, and you can transform the artifact as a uh, instant, right? So Correct. there is no creature in play until you want there to be, and that can be very relevant to attack a planeswalker or a post wrath hmm. world or whatever. Interesting. All right, another one-drop Progenitor Exarch. XX White. Gosh, what a casting cost. XX White. It's a 1-2 Phyrexian Cat Cleric. It has the ability Tap, Transform, Target, Incubator, Token, you control. So what was all the X about? Well, when the Progenitor Exarch enters the battlefield, you incubate three X times. So incubate is a variable... Incubate three means that your incubator token will have three plus one plus one counters on it and will eventually become a three three Phyrexian germ or something like that. So I play this on turn one. I now have the ability to free flip my incubator tokens. But if I play this on turn three, for example, paying three mana, I get my one two and I get, you know, something that will become a three three creature and it just scales the later the game goes. Yeah, it's a really interesting card. It seems like it's actually playable almost. So for five mana, we get three two twos. Well, three incubators with two tokens on them each. Five mana, X is two, incubate three twice. I mean, I'm in for that. I, I really love how Progenitor Exarch and Omen Hawker both unlock incubator tokens immediately. So you have now like potentially eight one drops that can just flip any incubating you want to do. It's almost like a pre-built deck. It's kind of alarming. Like they, they really went hard on incubate. I guess they figured this is a one set only mechanic and they just like gave us all kinds of stuff for it. So I don't know if that's actually going to be a thing. Like what is the best two mana card that generates a token? Uh, I guess the best we've seen is that Norn's Inquisitor that is a one, one that incubates for two and it, you know, boosts all your transform things. But maybe, you know, maybe we're going to generate a lot of to tokens off Seed Shark or something else. If you draw multiple copies of the Exarch, I think it's pretty cute how, you know, the first one means that you can spend all your mana in this, on the second one and then still immediately flip uh, because you already have one in play. Yeah, and again, we'll just have to play out. This card just seems really good to me, so I'm wondering if it's <laughs> worse than I think. I do love the Tezzeret flips all these things for free basically you just flip one mm -hmm. on your turn flip one on the next turn so yeah. like if you play tezzeret on four play this on five it just flips them both even if they kill the exarch you just get two three threes that seems amazing and, and you have the exarch in play yeah <laughs> so we're, we're clearly missing something <laughs> they can't be this good and then well the other thing that's sweet is it can just minus two to make them big too so like flips one and then it can minus two to the other one so even if they kill it somehow so you, you already have two four fours in play, and then on your next turn you can unlock the other one. It something's wrong here. I, I agree. <laughs> so you're talking about Tezzeret Betrayer of Flesh being able to change the base power and toughness of an incubator. And it turns it into a creature. Yeah. Oh it does. So, oh, seriously? I believe so. So you don't even have to pay the mana. Gosh. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah. All right. It can't be as good as we're thinking. <laughs> we'll have to see how <laughs> that goes. Yeah. Target artifact becomes an artifact creature. It has base power and toughness of four four. So when it, even even minus you don't have to minus two it because on their upkeep right you can transform for free. But it like it, it lets you transform three in a turn cycle. Right. You can assuming you didn't play an artifact to play Tezzeret or, or cast whatever spell you you use its first reduction on your turn. You target another one with his minus two, make it a, a four four with plus three plus three, and then on the their upkeep you transform the other one. So it just lets you like fly through these things, and the, if the only thing that's holding us back is the tempo, it fixes that problem immediately. We're like the only like believers in Tezzeret, though, so maybe yeah, it's, true. <laughs> it's, it's all gone horribly wrong. <laughs> all right, next up we have the Green Consider. David, tell me about Seed of Hope. Seed of Hope instant. Mill two cards. You may put a permanent card from among the milled cards into your hand. You gain two life. So, you know, in green decks, if the, let's say you're playing four Seed of Hope, but everything else is a permanent. You basically can't miss, right? And that and that's pretty typical. There's not a lot of misses in these green decks if they're all planeswalkers and creatures and oath of nissas and lands. Yeah, I guess the question would be what's the maximum number of non-permanents I can play to like guarantee that I'm I'm not gonna miss on this? And I think it's somewhere like twelve, maybe fourteen. Um if you want to like have ninety percent ninety percent plus. I haven't actually done the math on this. All right, looking at top two cards. Yeah, it's, it'll take too long for me to figure out how to use this thing. <laughs> yeah, so you can play, you know, like four Seed of Hope, four Storm of the Festival. Is this kind of... <laughs> Maybe, yeah, something like that. <laughs> so Green has plenty of cards like this. Why, why would this one make the difference? Well, it's an instant, for starters. It has incidental life gain. Uh, it fills the graveyard, which a card like, you know, Oath of Nissa doesn't quite do. It's just like, it's kind of small. So like, I think that, you know, maybe in, in modern specifically, if you're trying to do some kind of dragons race Chandler setup or something, I'm not sure. This is an interesting addition to all formats. It's not powerful. Yeah. I'm thinking of it in terms of like, you know, we built some Saltai things with that enchantment that lets you remove cards from your graveyard to cast non-creature spells. Oh, the, uh, titan's nest yeah and this card might fit in well there like one of the problems is you play the the one in a green uh that looks at your top five and puts an enchantment Mm -hmm. but you actually don't get to play that many enchantments you're playing like four shark typhoon four nest and then it like it just misses you you can't play that many creatures so maybe you play this instead of course it's a less powerful effect but it's much more mana efficient um and it gives you like something to do on turn one it's like this and gaze. Maybe it's worse. I, I don't know. Because I'm not sure you actually want to play Shark Typhoon. I think that's that's was kind of part of the trap. Like I would resolve hardcast Shark Typhoon a lot, and I would just lose those games. Yeah, I've seen people playing Worst Fears as their payoff for Titan's Nest. Uh, kind of like immediately wins. Yeah, that that's a that's a super cool find. Hmm. All right. Well, I'm not sure about Seed of Hope, but it's one to keep an eye on. Finally, for the one drops, Lithomantic Barrage. Lithomantic Barrage, red sorcery, cannot be countered. It deals one damage to target creature or planeswalker 
or it deals five damage instead if the target was white and or blue. So we compare this to Fry, we compare this to Rending Volley, what do we find? Yeah, it's just way worse than uh, Rending Volley. It's not an instant. So doesn't kill Grease Fang, doesn't kill Rafine, doesn't kill Adeline, and doesn't kill Brutal Cathar the turn it comes into play, hmm. and doesn't hit any Flash Spirits. So it's like, that's a wide swath of cards, especially since those are the main decks you'd bring in this card out of your sideboard for, same for Rending Volley. It does hit Planeswalkers, which Rending Volley does not. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I honestly don't even think you can consider this card. I mean, all those cards, you just can't let, like, Adeline in an attack is terrible. Rafine getting an attack is terrible. Brulukathar, your blocker, getting an attack is terrible. Grease Fang <laughs> getting to activate is probably the end of the game. I mean, I these aren't, like, minor things, right? That's that's just the game. So being able to kill a Lanor Elf doesn't move you at all? No, because you wouldn't play this against Mono Green, would you? I'm not sure. I mean, this whole cycle is like, you know, you can play them against anything and they give you something. But uh, yeah. well, we're, we'll get to the one I think is actually main deckable shortly. I, I, I think this card literally should see zero play in, in Pioneer. Fair enough. And with that, we have concluded the one drops and we are on to the twos. All right, David, tell me about Rona, Herald of Invasion. Rona, Herald of Invasion, one in a blue for a one three human wizard. Whenever you cast a legendary spell, untap Rona, Herald of Invasion. Tap, draw a card, then discard a card. We call that looting. And then five and a black Phyrexian mana, transform Rona, activate only as a sorcery. So this mechanic is all over the set and is pretty miserable on every card except for maybe just this one. Uh, you highlight a few cheaper cards you kind of mm. liked uh, on the last episode, but this is the only rare I've seen that I'd even consider. Uh, Rona, Herald of Invasion, transforms into Rona, Talarian Obliterator, a 5 5 Phyrexian wizard, legendary, 5 5 trample. Whenever a source deals damage to Rona, that source's controller exiles a card from their hand at random. If it's a land card, you may put it onto the battlefield under your control. Otherwise, you may cast it without paying its mana cost. So it kind of turns into like a Phyrexian Obliterator where it really punishes them for taking damage. Especially like if they block, it's basically unblockable if they have any cards in their hand. Uh, and then on the front side, it's kind of like a Jace Friend's Prodigy with an extra untap clause and an extra toughness, which is quite relevant. Exactly. And you and I had a little bit of a disagreement when we first saw this card. I think you said looters are bad. We've established this through many, many failed leagues. And we've definitely failed with our previous attempts at looting. But I contended that it was because the cards that loot were themselves just a little bit too weak. And the fact that we keep mentioning Jace Friend's Prodigy tells you how weak these looters have been. Like there just has not been a good one. Like Ledger Shredder it doesn't say loot, it says Kanai, but that, that's actually very good, right? Ledger Shredder is a multi-format staple. It churns through your deck, and it has that crucial third toughness. So Rona, to me, is just, like, way better than Jace just for the toughness alone. Now, what's the upside? Well, we get a bunch of loots, right? You can untap this every time you cast a legendary spell, and we get combo potential. Uh, Rona actually fuels a, a kind of interesting infinite combo with Mox Amber and Retraction Helix. We're, we're kind of combining elements of Paradox Engine and Jeskai's Hennessy combo here, but because Rona untaps itself every time you play the Mox Amber, all you need to do is put a Retraction Helix onto Rona, and then it can just recast the Amber over and over again. Now, it, it won't be looting when you do that, but it will be generating infinite blue mana, and you just need to find some way to win from that situation. 
What? Uh, so when Rona flips, is she blue and black? Is it's a she? I think is she blue and black? Yes. Okay. So you can flip her in the middle of that if you want, if you don't need to continue infinite comboing, and or if you've got another way to infinite combo. Yeah, I, I think this infinite combo line is kind of the way that I would pursue this card. I don't know as a fair card that it's actually better than Jace. Yes, it survives specifically Stomp. Hmm. Um, there aren't that many other two damage effects that I can really think of, but Stomp is a is a ubiquitous one. Um, right? Or am I am I missing something? That's the main one, I think. Yeah. But Jace eventually draws you a card, right? It comes into play and casts Fatal Push or Thoughtseize or whatever. So, like, for this to actually go up a card, you need to do the infinite combo thing you're describing or get to flip. Uh, you keep mentioning Omen Hawker, which I love. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that's the kind of thing you have to do is figure out how am I going to turn this into a win, right? When we played the four mana to fairy that looted, we looted a ton. We looted for multiple turns, on their turn, on our turn. And we found without a concrete way to turn that into an advantage, right? You spend a lot of time drawing the perfect card, but, um, you know, if they cast a few two for ones, then you kind of find yourself behind. So I love, I love the combo angle on this. And I love the idea that you have, like, you kind of need to find a way, Omen Hawker and Tyvar, maybe the, maybe the best way to, to turn it into the back half. So you can start rewarding yourself for finding, you know, the best four card hand or whatever. I hear what you're saying. I, I'm not ready to give up on looting yet as like a, a, just a way to win the game because Rona gives you so many loots, right? Yes. Forgetting all combos, you, know, you just have some legends in your deck and you're going to loot so many times. We just had Unctus week. If you have Unctus in play, you're going to loot so many times, so many freaking times. There's got to be some way to turn that into a big advantage. Yeah, I... I it, but that, that's my problem is, yeah, we just had Unctus Week and I looted a fucking shit ton of times. <laughs> and then, you know, they cast Shieldred or whatever. It's like, well, that yep. dream is over. I can't attack anymore. And I, they haven't taken any damage. And I'm not actually up any cards or I'm up maybe, you know, half a card here or there. Yeah, that that happened to me as well. So <laughs> you do need your own Shieldreds to counteract their Shieldreds. Right, yeah. But to your point, you get to see a lot of cards. So if there is a combo, uh, to your point though, Dan, if there is a combo... A looter is a great card to have as part of that combo because it helps naturally find it. And if the legendary cards are part of the combo, like your Mox Amber line, you are getting to see an insane amount of your deck. Yeah, and I think Tyvar has, has totally changed the way that we can dream dreams with two mana creatures that have yep. tap abilities. Agree. Maybe it does. And is and is a legend itself. Exactly. Now the are exactly. officially legendary. Yeah. All right, on to Invasion of Gobakan. Ah, Gobacon. <laughs> we just care so much the people of Gobacon yeah, are rising exactly. up against the Phyrexians. Yeah, one and a white battle siege with three defense. This is actually the, the cheapest battle to win. When invasion of Gobacon enters the battlefield, look at target opponent's hand. You may exile a non-land card from it for as long as that card remains exiled. They can play it, but it will cost them two mana more. So that's actually the same effect as Elite Spellbinder. On the back side, you get the Light Shield Array and Enchantment. At the beginning of each end step, no, correction, at the beginning of your end step, put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature that attacked this turn. Activated ability Sacrifice the Light Shield Array. Creatures you control gain Hexproof and Indestructible until end of turn. Yeah, so if you are very lucky, you can play Delver of Secrets turn one. You can play this <laughs> turn two and flip it right away. And get a 4-3 Delver. Gosh. 
So we know that the front side is a playable effect, but it's not worth two mana. It's unclear if it's even worth one mana. I'm thinking of our ill-fated Curse of Silence week. However, the backside is pretty clearly worth at least a card, right? The sacrificing ability to protect something is almost certainly going to come up at some point in the game if you're playing the kind of aggressive deck that is needed to flip this. And then it's like how much you're getting from the plus one, plus one counter. It's going to get more powerful the more you are a go-wide deck. So, you know, if you did Kaldotha Rebirth, if you did Gleeful Demolition and you made like little tokens and then attacked the invasion with them, you just grew them each by plus one, plus one, and they're protected from a wrath. So that's actually pretty cool. Or imagine, you know, turn two this, turn three squee. I'm like, which squee are you talking about? The, 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 the standard legal squee, the pioneer gotcha, legal squee. Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, okay, yeah, that's three damage right there. Yeah, three damage right there, and then there's two bodies. Again, the, the, the reason I'm pointing it out is it's two haste bodies that yeah. also get the counter. Okay. So. And then I, I sent a message to Dan. This is a card I've been thinking about since he mentioned in passing. Uh, that it worked with Aspirant, but we didn't have enough copies, like, whenever Aspirant was printed two years ago. Uh, Shatter Skull Giant, one red-red for a 4-3 haste. Trample. Uh, during your end step, if it does not have a plus one, plus one counter on it, return it to your hand. And then it has kicker two. Uh, if you pay the kicker, you it comes into play with a plus one, plus one counter. So Aspirant into that is awesome, right? It's a 5-4 trample haste that's way above the curve. Mm -hmm. This is another card that we can play on to, so on curve, that this can kill. And the way the trigger stack, it's an intervening if, so the trigger will go on the stack because it doesn't have a plus one, plus one counter, but we can have the flipped uh, battle resolve first. So when the Shatter Skull Giant checks, it does indeed have a plus one, plus one counter. It stays in play. So I have had this deck built <laughs> basically since Dan mentioned the Asper thing. We've slowly gained cards, so... Uh, Kumano faces uh, Kakazan is mm -hmm. another card that gives a plus one plus one counter on curve and this is the third one that I needed so I've just been waiting I have like a 4x slot in the two mana or one mana slot just waiting this is the card that I've been waiting for so I finally get to build that deck it's got a bunch of new tools right I saw you put uh, the Dusk Legion Zealot in there as well that's the new vampire that draws cards when it gets counters yeah again I think uh, um, turn one Kumano into Dusk Legion Zealot or Beard, those are both just like super powerful, either a 2-mana 3-3 three, three that draws a card or a 2-mana 3-3 three, three that makes a 1-1. One, one. And again, Beard attacking uh, this the turn after, let's say it made a 1-1, one, one, and then you'll have multiple attacking creatures because you'll have the Kumano come off, flip, plus Blair, plus the 1-1 one, one it made. If you're able to play this and kill it, you could, let's say your opponent's doing nothing because <laughs> it's magical Christmas land. You can kill the, the uh, battle and have multiple bodies to absorb counter. So you're just like threading an insane amount of damage with wrath protection. So the fact that this is like random wrath protection encourages you to play wide. You want to play wide to make sure you can kill the battle. And then once the battle's flipped, it actually protects you from, from going wide. Yeah. Baird, Argivian Recruiter, it's a red, white, 2-2. Two, two. Spits out a token on your end step if you control a creature with power greater than its base power. And... Shatter Skull Charger is the giant we're talking about. Yep. Another battle. Invasion of Ixalan. One in a green. Battle Siege. Four defense. When Invasion of Ixalan enters the battlefield, look at the top five cards of your library. You may reveal a permanent card from among them. Any permanent. Put it into your hand. The rest on the bottom. When you defeat this battle... You get the Belligerent Regisaur, a 4-3 dinosaur with trample. Whenever you cast a spell, Belligerent Regisaur gains indestructible 
until end of turn. So the front side is like fine, right? It's, it's fine. And the back side is also fine. So this is probably fine. Yeah, I mean, the deck where you think that might want it is Mono Green Devotion. And I actually mm -hmm. don't think this is quite good enough. The thing I like is that it does re... It, it casts a Bludgeon Registrar, so Kira will trigger. Um, being two instead of one is a huge cost. I mean, it makes this much worse than Oath. And um, I don't think there's any other permanents other than Planeswalker, Creature, or Land other than the three other oaths. So it's not like invasion sees a bunch of other permanents that oath doesn't. Um, and then once it's flipped, it doesn't actually count a, as a green pip for Nykthos. That's a very minor cost. Uh, but the main problem in mono green is that the belligerent registrar doesn't do anything because you don't have an instant way to cast anything to give it indestructible in, in the face of a wrath of God type of effect. Um, so yeah, I think this is just a little too, too slow. Um, I think, it's fine margins with the mono green deck and the, the list is pretty tight. So I think you've got uh, outlined here, like Orion. I think that's the kind of uh, deck that would want this again, a deck that doesn't care about damaging them. That's, that's trying to win by 50 cards. And this continues to do that. Yeah. Orion, one of the last cards that can easily flip as many battles as you have. So, you know, if this is part of that equation, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. What I was thinking was, in our last episode, Lawson outlined a few creatures that can win battles in one shot. Uh, he's, he mentioned Tarmogoyf, he mentioned Territorial Kavu, he, uh, Sign of Draco. For that to be an interesting line, we need to have battles that are just okay, right? An invasion of Tarkir is not good enough, right? Two damage for a shock is not something I can actually reliably count on as being worth a card. But maybe Invasion of Ixalan is that card. You know, it's fine. It's not a great play, but if I'm going to get the 4-3 right away, it's it's a clean 2-for-1. Maybe it found me another copy of Invasion of Ixalan, and then the Belligerent Registrar is going to attack the battle again and just keep unlocking itself. So if we just want like a neutral battle to see how good is it to flip battles, this is probably the best one. Yeah, I, I, I like that line of thinking. I mean, that line of thinking suggests to me that battles are not basically playable. Um, I, I don't think those lines sound like winning lines to me, but... I certainly am not a modern expert. And of course the play, you can imagine the play draw discrepancies, right? If I get to play Tarmogoyf on two and you play whatever your Tarmogoyf, then I get to push your Tarmogoyf, play my invasion, flip your thing, flip my battle. If that's mm -hmm. what I've decided to do. And if it's the other way around, then my battle is like just a hideous play on two. Like you just start smashing me with your Tarmogoyf and I've not, you know, killed your Ragavan. I've not interacted with what you're doing at all. I'm behind, but I'm not down a card, though, because I at least got something <laughs> exactly. for my top five. There you so go. It's not horrible. Yeah. That's the attitude that we need. <laughs> <laughs> I have seven cards in my hand. I can't be losing this game by that much. Exactly. I'm way behind, but look at all my incubator tokens. <laughs> yeah. I'm not looking at my life total. No, no, thank you. <laughs> Next up, change the equation. Yeah, change the equation. One in a blue instant, choose one. Counter target spell with mana value two or less, or counter target red or green spell with mana value six or less. Um, yeah, so I've seen people talking about this as a powerful cyborg card in Pioneer. I think that is absolutely true. Uh, I just think this is main deckable. <laughs> really? I've, out I've outlined all the uh, decks here where it actually just has a ton of targets. Um, so I'll go through them quickly, yeah. if you like. So, all right, obviously mono green. 
This the hate card's good there. Okay, duh. A Tarkus command mono red. Yeah, that's pretty good there. What about red green boats? Okay, red and green. That's it's good there. What about red black? Well, it's only okay there. It gets push and thoughtseize, the two best cards of the deck. It gets fable. It hits uh, Bankbuster, hits Blood Tie, that hits Bone Crusher. Oh, that's going to be a lot of targets. Mono White only has four cards that this doesn't hit in the whole list. Mono Blue Spirits only has four cards that doesn't hit in the whole list. Phoenix has eight or nine cards this can't hit. It's not that great there. Creativity, it hits everything. Atraxa, it hits all the combo pieces and it hits the green Delve six drops. It hits. Bring to Light, it hits Omnath, it hits Fires, it hits Collected Company, it hits Enigmatic Incarnation, it hits Gigantha. Um, so yeah, I think it's just mediocre against Abzan Greasefang, where it just hits Char Chariot and all the Enablers. It's kind of bad against Blue-White. All it does is hit their two-mana counter spell, so it's, it's, it is poor there. Um, but, I mean, people main deck negate. People play Push. That's worse against a wider variety of decks than, than this card is. I, I think this is borderline, like... A counter spell that lets you play Gigantha if you want to play like a teamer list. Hmm. And I, I think it's actually just really good. All right. So if I'm thinking, how does it compare to Ether Gusts? I'm thinking too narrow. Because when I when I ask that question, I think, well, the gust hits permanence already in play, so it's still gonna have a role and it gets uncounterable things. So the, the gust is its job is safe. But you're saying that actually this is coming for make disappear. Make disappear is done after this card. We should just play change the equation instead. Maybe, or, you know, like a split of them is probably worth thinking about. Um, or like in a blue blacklist where, you know, maybe you don't want to play um, sensor anymore. Okay. Yes, I'm in for that. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> I'm in. Uh, so, or, 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 you know, just like you're just adding two random pieces of counter magic. The thing is, like, a lot of decks have unique bad matchups, right? And some of them are specifically mono green. Mono green is not a deck that should be banned, but it does have a bunch of uh, matchups that are like very difficult to win just because of how your interaction interacts. And getting to play just like straight up counterspell off a splash color is just crazy there. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure where this will go, but I mean, I just walked through basically the top 15 decks in the format and it's basically good against all of them except blue black and uh, blue white. Yeah. Okay, I'm in for that. So change the equation has changed the equation. Good job, Wizards, on Counter Magic and Pioneer. Also, if you want to play Gigantha, this is a counter spell you can sideboard in. Like, instead of, yeah, I, I don't know what Gigantha decks are also playing blue, but that, that's worth noting. Yeah, I mean, the Atraxa deck is, is playing Gigantha and there you go. would be interested in this. What about Invasion of New Phyrexia? X, white, blue, battle siege with six defense. So it takes a long time to flip this. When Invasion of New Phyrexia enters the battlefield, create X, two, two, white and blue knight creature tokens with vigilance. So that's all the front does. As much mana as you have, you get that many knights. Eventually, if you do ever defeat this battle, you get a planeswalker. You get a Teferi planeswalker specifically with four loyalty. And a plus one ability, draw two cards, then discard two cards unless you discard a creature card. A minus two, you get an emblem with knights you control, get plus one plus oh, and have ward one. Or minus three, tap X creatures you control. When you do, shuffle target non-land permanent and opponent controls with mana value X or less into the owner's library. So all three of those abilities assume you're a creature deck. 
kind of strange for a Teferi planeswalker. But to me, like, apart from just being kind of kind of boring, I think it's actually like fairly fairly annoying out of blue-white control. Like if they play this, I think I'm in trouble. So you're thinking this is like their sideboard. Instead of bringing in that like five mana cat that makes two one-one cats, this is kind of your sideboard plan for like the mid-range grindy matchups. You know, I'm not sure. Like because you're not talking about like main decking this as your finisher over like Shark Typhoon. I mean, maybe it stabilizes a lot quicker than Shark Typhoon does. And it gets even stronger in the cyborg games where, you know, people should not leave in cards to kill the knights, right? They, that's not a good way to attack blue-white control. So they spit all these knights into play and, and maybe those knights do something, maybe they don't. But it's reasonable to assume that at some point they will unlock the battle, whether with the Hall of the Storm Giants hit or maybe Shark Typhoon hits. They'll eventually get the Teferi Planeswalker, who is not worth a ton, but he's worth something. Yeah, I, I can't imagine this being a main deck card in a control deck. I think the fact that it's blue-white is almost like throwing us off the scent, like we hmm. are thinking it should be a control deck, but like this flip to fairy doesn't do anything. Draw two cards. Our control deck is not playing creatures, right? I think this is much more of a standard card because their control decks play like four two-mana counter spells and then just all the same stuff, Bankbuster and uh, the six-mana card that you know can blink permanence and makes two two-soldiers and the you know, the four mana wandering emperor. Like it's not a, it's not a permission deck as we think about it. I think the pioneer style control deck or the the modern style control deck, um, the front side is just way too weak of an effect that they've, they've printed that effect before and we've never even considered it uh, possibly playable. There's a white, white X make X two twos. If you spent life X is 10 or more, they become four, four angels instead. Um, that's not that far off from what invasion is doing. And I don't, think we've ever talked about it after it was spoiled hmm. um okay so I, yeah I, I, and then like flipping the teferi it just seems like a waste of time again i think this is like a great mid-range card in the epic mid-range battles that will continue throughout standard uh and if such a deck exists in, in pioneer i think it has to be like a mid-range deck I, I think you have to actually have a deck with creatures otherwise i don't ever want to flip teferi flip teferi and start looting two at a time maybe. <laughs> yeah this is <laughs> Draw two and discard those <laughs> cards. <laughs> All right, David, are we ready to move on to the threes? All right, the threes. Yes. At three mana. At three mana, we kick things off with a draft common that again signals to me that Incubate cannot be as good as I think it is because this card looks great to me. It looks freaking great. And I need someone to talk me out of it. So tell me about the Marauding Dreadship. <laughs> I was stunned you highlighted this card. Marauding Dreadship, two and a green for a 4-1 haste artifact vehicle. When it enters the battlefield, incubate two. So, um, I, I, you tell me what you like about this. <laughs> well, when I say incubate two, I think to myself, that's a creature. And I know that that cannot be true, but that is going to be a creature at some point. I'm going to build my deck in such a way that, you know, maybe I've got that... Um, the XX white guy we talked about at the top of the show, or I've got the Omen Hawker or Tezzeret or something like that. So what am I getting here? I'm spending three. I'm getting a 4-1 haste. It's crew two, but the incubator token can crew that. And I'm getting another body. So I'm getting six power, three toughness, four with haste, two bodies, two artifacts on one card. It's a vehicle for any vehicle synergies, you know, whether that's, you know, is it Magda? Is it Unctus? This seems to be hitting all the notes that I want. I think what's not to like. 
So you're thinking like Magda on two, Marauding Dreadship on three, crew it with Magda, make a treasure, get in for four or trade or whatever. And then we uh, turn our other thing into a thing and play another Marauding Dreadship that we get to crew with our new uh, friend. I mean, they can't, they can't not answer the four one haste, right? That's enough power that it has to be traded with. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So, so that, that does force a block, uh, probably, from them. And then you have an incubator left over. So how much is that worth to you? I mean, that's the deck question you have to answer, but I think this is actually very powerful. Okay, I, I had not even considered this card, so that's kind of exciting. Um, to your point, it also makes two artifacts. That's not nothing. Yeah. If you're trying to improvise. One of the decks I played during Unctus Week used Mind Link Mech right, as a three-mana, four-power vehicle. And it wasn't actually that good. Like, it needed haste. It actually just needed haste. It, it would have been better as this in most situations. So, something to consider. All right, love it. All right, on to the next card. Zimon and Dinah. Zimon and Dinah, black, green, blue, legendary creature, human dryad. Whenever you draw your second card each turn, target opponent loses two life and you gain two life. We call that drain two. Uh, tap it, sacrifice another creature, draw a card. You may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield tapped. If you control eight or more lands, repeat this process once. So this is a card that gives you, it, it has a trigger when you draw your second card and it has a way to trigger itself, right? Which we typically see a card that does one or the other, a card that generates value or a card that, you know, rewards you uh, when you generate that value. This can do it all, assuming you have fodder. So not having an ETB is a problem. Other than that, it's got great stats. Well, not great. I mean, it's got fine stats. It, you have, probably have to collect a company of this to make it pretty explosive. But this is one of the best sacrifice rewards that we've seen on a card. Getting that drain is is quite powerful. I mean, there's, there's no arguing with the fact that this is actually powerful when it's doing its thing. I'm not sure like how much we need to help it to... like get it up to speed with the format like do we need to have tyvar or is it okay to just play this and wait yeah i mean again i think tyvar it just feels like a must for these kind of cards it just accelerates what they're trying to do so fast and i do think the card Jolriel, which makes a 2-2 whenever you draw your second card to like kind of feed this zimon and dina and maybe you can trigger on your turn and their turn which is something i'm really interested in doing hmm. um even let's talk about the uh, Jace that we just talked about. Like if you have that and Jolriel and this, you actually, it's not that hard to set up sequences where you're drawing two on your turn and drawing two on their turn. And then you're making an extra two, two that lets you uh, tab Zimon and Dina again. Like these things are, are actually like kind of going exponential a little bit. Yeah. If we could just win just by drawing cards. But this does. This is (laughs) this is turning those extra cards every turn into a full uh, shieldred kind of trigger. Okay, I mean, yeah, I like everything that's written on the card. I don't know how often it will actually make the cut in a deck, but good one to keep in mind. All right, next up we have a battle that is a a proper build around the invasion of Amonkhet, one blue black, for a siege with four defense. When invasion of Amonkhet enters the battlefield, each player mills three cards, then each opponent discards a card, and then you draw a card. So you get a little uh, disinformation campaign style little chunk of value there. 
plus some cards in your own graveyard. Maybe that helps you, maybe it doesn't. What happens when you defeat the battle? If you defeat the battle, you get a Lazotep Convert, a 4-4 zombie. You may have the Lazotep Convert enter the battlefield as a copy of any creature in any graveyard, except it remains a 4-4 black zombie in addition to its other types. So we already said the front side is like a clean two-for-one, plus some extra graveyard value, possibly setting up a sweet reanimation effect on a 4-4. Yeah, I mean, this card seems so slow to me. Uh, the the 3-mana two-for-one that doesn't affect the board is a real thing, right? It's similar to go blank without it turning off a bunch of decks' plans. And then you needed a way to actually get rid of the four loyalty in our deck that's trying to play a three mana sorcery two for one. So, you know, I don't know what the two drops or three drops with haste or whatever we're, we're playing to do that. Um, and we're hoping to also have a good creature in our deck that we milled so that this is like a, you know, some, something sweet, right? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I think a 4-4 is actually enough. Even if there's no creatures in the graveyard, we still get a 4-4 on top of our disinformation campaign. So we spent three mana, potentially the same turn, we added a 4-4 to the board, made them discard into a card. Like, isn't that just great? Well, we we allied over the difficult part, though. Potentially the same turn is doing a lot of work there. So that means we... Already had a four power creature in play that they didn't interact with. They don't have a blocker. We play this invasion and they choose not to block and we get to kill this immediately. The higher you go on the battles, right? The four or five and six mana battles, they kind of cost them like ETB creatures. They kind of assume that you already have creatures in play so that you're going to get all of it at once. And I think that at three mana, it's, it's right in that middle space where to me, this is doable. I'm interested in setting it up like Soaring Thought Thief, Thieves Guild Enforcer, you know, those those cards will probably deal for right away. Or some kind of, who knows, like a spirit's deck splashing black. Uh, that sounds weird. Um, but but why not? You know, the 4-4 just becomes a lord. And I'm okay waiting for it too. Like, I don't think it's that big a deal to be like a controlling deck that just eventually gets the 4-4. And if you want to go nuts, if you want to like set this up to become an Atraxa, it, that works too, right? It is entering the battlefield, so you do get ETBs, and I think that makes it a lot easier to find attractive targets. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to see. I mean, most of these battles feel like limited cards to me. Um, the, the lines you're describing just seem very improbable. Like, I'm just not seeing the sequence of cards. Like, even the rogues thing, I'd rather just leave up counter magic. I wouldn't, I don't want to play this. <laughs> It enables Drawn of the Lock. Does that do anything for you? Well, it makes me put Drawn of the Lock in my deck, which I always want to do, and then it always lets me down. So I have Drawn of the Lock up on two. It doesn't do anything. I play this on three. I can't cast Drawn of the Lock then. Turn four, I finally get to leave up my <laughs> instant interaction, which does not free the convert. It just it just feels like a, we're going to play these invasions, and they're going to frustrate us significantly. <laughs> I'd also point out that like all these battles have the issue. I don't know if you want to call it whatever. If you don't kill them, they don't do anything. So if you do three damage to this, it's like you did zero to it. There's there's no difference. Like damaging a planeswalker turns off, you know, its minus ability or whatever. Like that this doesn't do anything. If if you don't get all the way into the into the castle and you retreat it, it's like, all right, what the hell were we trying to retake Jerusalem for? <laughs> it's a good life lesson, David. <laughs> yeah. Bill's character. 
the battle's not over until it's over. Yeah, it's kind of like Magellan, just like burn the ships. <laughs> like we are taking this castle or we're dying, dying, trying. All right, we move on now all the way down to the four mana cards. We're actually, we're actually going to get there. We're going to get to the four mana cards. I can't believe it. And right off the bat, we have a card that confused me. Talking about Glistening Dawn. I read this, I thought it was unplayable, but you indicated that it actually has the potential here. So tell me about this card. All right, Glistening Dawn. Two green, green sorcery. Incubate X twice, where X is the number of lands you control. So if we cast it with four lands in play, it makes two uh, incubator tokens with four plus one plus one counters on it. I'm envisioning a deck, probably a Sultai deck, with the Seed Shark. Again, a card we just I've decided is broken. I've, I've seen no evidence to suggest we're wrong. Mm-hmm. And in that deck, in some versions of that deck, I want to play cards that um, pay me off for having incubator tokens in play. Something that lets me turn these incubators into creatures. So... Let's just say it's Tezzeret, but there's other cards that do it. If I play Tezzeret and don't hit my shark, then um, Tezzeret doesn't do that much. And if we play the Seed Shark without a bunch of ways to convert our multiple spell triggers into stuff, that doesn't do that much. Glistening Dawn kind of does both. It encourages us to play a lot of lands, right? So we play Grow Spiral on two. We have four mana on four. We can play Seed Shark plus a one mana spell. We can just play Tezzeret. And then, like, the next turn you could, like, Grow Spiral again, then cast Glistening Dawn with, for six, and then convert both of them in the same turn cycle. So it just gives you, like, a ton of bodies, a ton of stabilizing in your deck, um, which is which is kind of interesting to me. And it triggers the shark itself, so it makes, like, a zillion. Uh, if, if we're already investing ways to turn Incubate Tokens into creatures, I just want more ways to do it. That makes sense. I just feel like it's in the wrong colors. Like my incubate would probably start in blue and then probably go into white. Like those seem like the two strongest support colors for incubate, like making it easiest to flip the tokens. And if I'm going to play a two green green, I have to cut at least one of those colors. I'm hearing you say we're cutting white. Oh, I have zero interest in playing white in in any C-shark deck I propose. (laughs) All right. Well, like, well, and first of all, let's just, Put our biases on the table. I think the Gross Spiral is a like a broken card waiting to be like put in a deck. Mm-hmm. And Gross Spiral works really well with Seed Shark, and it works really well with Glistening Dawn because Glistening Dawn, unlike other cards that generate, when you get to like six mana, it's a six mana six six. If you want to think of it that way, that also incubates four or also incubates six. Okay. Like you can you can turn one of them into a creature. Like if you get to eight mana, you could you can do both of them at the same time. You just make two eight eights. So like later in the game, it's just, okay, we don't draw um, the shark and we don't draw Tezzeret. Like we just draw a bunch of gross spirals. Glistening Dawn on six mana is just a six mana six, six that also has a six, six waiting in, in wake. Interesting. Okay. Maybe I need to actually like, but again, we, we you and I both love incubate. So it's, it's possible. We just have to take a bunch of one, four leagues for the first month until we learn our lesson. I don't know. Yeah. All right, so from Incubate, we get a very, very simple creature, the Rampaging Raptor. It's two red-red for a 4-4 Trample Haste. It's also got a bunch of other texts in the same way that Questing Beast has other texts, and this text is fine. Activated ability, two and a red. Rampaging Raptor gets plus two plus zero until end of turn. That's fine. 
Whenever Rampaging Raptor deals combat damage to an opponent, it also deals that much damage to target Planeswalker or battle that that player controls. Or protects, rather, in the case of battles. I mean, at this point, they're just giving away 4-4 haste for 4. This used to be the most exciting creature we, we would see in a set. Well, I think that red getting it is a little different than green. You know, green's had beefy creatures forever. It's had three mana four fours with no <laughs> negatives and, in fact, multiple positive abilities. Mm-hmm. Red hasn't quite been at that level. Um, I, do, I Again, I'm, I'm not a believer in battles, but if battles are a thing, this is a very tempo-positive way to do it. You're playing red. You don't want to spend your time getting into a value war with your opponent. Um so while you're hitting them, you're unlocking, I'm even thinking of the red battle that, uh, the dragon one, the Tarkir one, mm-hmm. I think that has four toughness. What do, they, what do they call it? Four life four health points. Uh, that one has five defense, five defense oh for that God. one. That's enraging. Well, whatever, pick one with four that you want to try out. <laughs> <laughs> the, the red green battle that makes a treasure and, and rummages a card. Perfect. And then this is right on curve, uh, the next turn. Cause you ramp with your treasure. And so you free up what the three, four that draws another one, and then you can play that and flip it with your Raptor too. Yeah. I mean, much like with incubate there, there seems to be a battle of pre-constructed deck that they're, they put a bunch of cards in it. We'll see it. We'll see it first in standard. See if it's any good there. I'm not thinking of cards off the top of my head that like make that package stronger in pioneer and modern, but if there are some, it might be worth a look, I guess land or elves. Yeah, the the best card in the format would uh, perhaps help. All right, so from Rampaging Raptor, we go now to a controversial cycle. The Phyrexian Praetors. Each one is back. Just the name and the saga. Just the name and the legend. All of these are bad, is that fair to say? Um, I could actually... uh, they're, They're not going to see play. Okay. <laughs> but if you told me I had to brew a deck around them, I think I could get multiple winning records with the red and the white. And maybe all five of them, honestly. They're all very powerful. They're powerful, but they trick you. So the way that they're templated is the front side is a large creature with some static text or some ETB text, but not good enough text to justify the mana cost. Then they each give you the option to pay a bunch of mana at sorcery speed to transform them into the backside, which becomes this epic saga. And the saga, you know, destroys all your opponent's stuff and gives you a bunch of creatures. And then eventually it transforms back into the front side. So it's kind of selling you on this dream that you'll eventually get all this stuff. But you have to pay so much mana up front. So much mana. <laughs> the only one that's not like that is the red one, Urabrask. Urabrask is very cheap to transform, so we'll start with that. It's two red-red, legendary creature, Phyrexian Praetor, 4-4, four, four, first strike, static text, whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, Urabrask deals one damage to target opponent, and you add a red mana. The transform clause is, pay a red at sorcery speed, exile Urabrask, then return it to the battlefield transformed. Activate this only if you've cast three instant and or sorcery spells this turn. In theory, these could have been cast before you cast Aurobrask, so if you're in modern, if you really want to do this, you can go Desperate Ritual, Desperate Ritual, Aurobrask, Gut Shots, and that gives you the red you need to transform Aurobrask right away. What happens when you transform it? Well, this saga is not so impressive. It's called The Great Work. 
Chapter 1, the Great Work deals 3 damage to target opponent and each creature they control. Chapter 2, create 3 treasure tokens. Chapter 3 is basically Past in Flames for one turn. You can recast your instants and sorceries from any graveyard. Yeah, so the, the play pattern I see with this, if you want to make a deck around it, there's a bunch of two-mana cards that trigger whenever you cast an instant or sorcery. Like, there's the the 0-3 wall that taps to do a damage. I think there's an 0-4 wall that just does a damage to your opponent. Uh, and then you could play, like, the one red-red enchantment that says every uh, non-piece of combat damage uh, that a red or an artifact creature does does one extra. So let's say we play that on two, we play the enchantment on three, we play Urbrask on four. Then if our deck is just a bunch of instants and sort let uh, deal damage, whatever, a series of shocks, Urbrask does like an insane amount of damage to our opponent, and then it flips into something that does another three uh, damage. And then it basically has like suspend two win the game because the third trigger is going to find all of your uh, shocks again to be cast, and Urbrask itself comes back into place. So you can for sure cast them all. Uh, because everyone basically replaces itself. So you're saying that this is not just incidental damage. This is actually the best way to win the game with Erebrask is to say, okay, the three damage that I'm dealing on the turn that I flip Erebrask plus the chapter one, three damage, I'm going to make that win the game. Yeah. Like, like what's the, uh, there's a one in a red sorcery, um, you know, XL the top two cards, right? You may play them until end of turn, whatever that card is. Yeah. Uh, reckless impulse. Okay, and then you play the uh, all the cards that trigger once you've already done a damage, because Urbrask will already do the damage for you. So the one that flips your other top two, the Lightning Bolt. Um, okay, light up the stage, skewer the critics. Light up the stage, there you go, yep. yep. So you're doing all that stuff. And what, do you have the enchantment in play? Did they kill your, your, uh, your O4 wall that's triggering each of these? Yeah, maybe. So you're just cycling through all these cards, and Urbrask is basically making them free or near free. So you get to cast like five or six spells. Whenever you're the, you cast your last one, you make your red and you flip it. You do three to them, so it's a one-sided anger. And then you make three treasures on your next turn. You hope they don't kill you. And then on your next turn, the third thing triggers, it comes back into play, and then all these spells are in your graveyard, and they all again are free. Um, plus you have three treasures, so you can hopefully cast their spells as well. All right, that, that is at least plausible, and that uses Urbrest's unique properties. Unfortunately, what I'm seeing from other people around the internet is like, you know, they're, they're getting stuck on the mana generation and coming up with all these convoluted lines where generating a red mana lets you do this crazy stuff. But we already know that Burgi, God of Storytelling, gives you that effect at three mana. So if you want to do that, then Burgi decks will be running all over the place, which they are not, right? This is just not that good of an effect. And this is not a replicative effect of Burgi for like, you know, even at the Pro Tour, a few people played the Burgi combo deck. Mm-hmm. Burgi triggers on any spell, right? So you can do the loop with the the three mana 2-2 two, two that returns to your hand. Uh, of course, I'm not going to know what it's called. Yeah, grinning and goodness. Yeah. So this doesn't work with that, right? So this is not even a duplicative effect of Burgi. Um, so I think the line I'm aligning is probably the only way I'd consider playing it. And again, all those cards are very playable. All right, so that's the best of the cycle. <laughs> At least the easiest to transform. What do you make of the white member, Elish Norn? Yeah, so Elish Norn, four mana, three, five vigilance. Whenever a source an opponent controls deals damage to you or a permanent you control, that source's controller loses two life unless they pay one colorless for each time, right? So if multiple creatures attack, they have to pay for each creature. If multiple creatures deal combat damage, yeah. yeah. And then to flip, it's three mana, sacrifice three other creatures, hex out Elish Norn, then return to the battlefield transformed under its owner's control. 
the first chapter incubate two five times, then transform all incubate tokens you control. Chapter two, creatures you control get plus one, plus one, and gain double strike until end of turn. Chapter three, destroy all other permanents except for artifacts, lands, and Phyrexians, XL, Argent etchings, then return to the battlefield as Elish Norn. So, in like the complicated combats we see in Limited, Elish Norn is absolutely insane. Like every trade or every time you have a two, three bounce off a, a one, three, that your opponent just has to pay mana or they're just taking damage. Um, but, like, you can never flip this, right? Three mana sacrifice three other creatures, colon, means if they have a terror effect, you just four mana, you just three mana sacrifice your board, put everything in the graveyard, put your deck back in the deck box, and uh, put, <laughs> put the deck box back in your backpack and call it, a, call it a life. So, in that scenario, you paid seven mana total, four for Ellis Norn, three to activate, to sacrifice four creatures total, and what do you have to show for it? Nothing. So yeah, if, if your opponent taps out ever or whatever, fine. You know, if you're just randomly playing creatures, but I would never play Elstorn to try to flip it. It's just like a fine creature. It's okay. You know, the problem is it's just worse than a lot of other four mana options. It's easy to go over the top of it. But if you knew for sure you were just going to be in these mid-range combat battles with like red-green boats, I'm just making like the one of the few matchups where this would be insane. You just do six to eight damage to your opponent every combat step on your and their turn. Um, so it'd be awesome there, but it just, it just doesn't do enough. I don't think. Yeah. I think definitely just ignore the backside, ignore the activated ability that makes it harder to see what this card actually offers. What it does offer is a card that's very similar to Archangel of Tithes, right? Archangel of Tithes, four mana, three, five, that makes them pay mana if they want to even participate in combat. Elish Norn, I mean, it's so punishing to take this damage and Elish Norn actually taxes direct damage so if you're just paired up against a red deck if their plan was to point removal spells like damage spells at your creatures they're going to take damage a lot of damage but is that enough it makes me wonder like you didn't want to talk about it which is fine the the elspeth you know is a, is a like the curve topper on a white deck maybe this is like a curve topper on an aggro deck like you play it when they try they've stabilized mm-hmm. you know but they had to tap out to play shieldred or whatever they use like attack, right? Shieldred blocks. It's not preventing that much damage because it's doing two to you, right? You block with your your fable token, right? That does two to you. It's it's almost like it just locks in that these creatures must damage you that turn. So that's just I mean, I, I don't really believe in this card, but maybe that's what it like it, like you say, we just have to delete that it has like mm. text after the first paragraph. Yeah. But maybe it's just like a great like curve topper of your aggro deck. All right, on to a mythic battle, the Invasion of Innistrad. Two black-black, five defense. It has flash. When Invasion of Innistrad enters the battlefield, target creature and opponent controls gets minus 13, minus 13 until end of turn. So it's a four mana kill spell. Instant, basically. When you win the Battle of Innistrad, you get the Deluge of the Dead, an enchantment. When it enters the battlefield, you create two... 2-2 two, two black zombie creature tokens, and you get an activated ability. You can pay two in a black, exile, target card from any graveyard. If it was a creature card, you also create another 2-2 two, two black zombie creature token. So again, this is one where, I mean, based on how it's priced, I think you have to think of this as a 4-mana creature, or in this case, 4-mana token maker, that also has ETB, kill a creature, and your opponent gains 5 life. If it is that, it's like, okay. It's okay. 
Yeah, I think they price the removal effects a little bit higher than some of the other ones because the removal effect in theory clears the blocker that would let you maybe flip invasion that turn, right? You could mm -hmm. already have a whatever. Um, can't think of a five power creature, but whatever it is, it's you play that on turn four and then they played a blocker or they left a blocker back or whatever. They played their creature. Then you cast Innistrad. You kind of have to almost play it off curve, right? Like there's there aren't that many three mana creatures with five power, so they don't let you like do that natural curve into it, which I think is is by design. What do you make of the payoff, the zombie tokens and graveyard control? Um, I mean the grave the graveyard hate happens so late it doesn't right. I mean it, you're not playing this card to stop Grease Fang. I mean this card seems very fair to me. I I like that there's incidental graveyard hate because. You know, bringing back Atraxa is just a thing all decks just randomly do in Standard. Uh, I think this card will be very playable in Standard. I, I can't imagine a Pioneer deck playing this. Format removal is just totally un, unplayed in the format right now. Makes sense. All right. Two more to go. Invasion of Kaldheim. This is a card that has captured a lot of people's imaginations. Tell me about the Invasion of Kaldheim. Four mana battle siege. When it enters the battlefield, exile all cards from your hand, then draw that many cards. Until the end of your next turn, you may play cards exiled this way. And then the flipped version is discard a land. Pyre of the World Tree deals two damage to any target. We've seen that effect before actually be pretty good in like modern swans back when modern was modern. But this has the extra ability. Whenever you discard a land card, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card this turn. So you kind of turn every land into two damage and an impulse uh, effect or whatever we call it. Right. All of your lands become just amazing. <laughs> the best yeah. removal spells and card draw spells ever printed. The, the backside just seems insane, right? In our last episode, Lawson Zandi, when he was talking about like his favorite card for modern, this is the card that he's like very excited by. And when you dig into it, well, all these lines... They all start with Ren and Six. If Ren and Six was in play from turn two, then yes, you are very likely to have a bunch of stuff on your hand, useless lands, which the front side converts to new cards, and then the back side converts to just solid gold, right? Shocks that draw cards. So that's the upside, and it's insane. We would love to have this in play. What's not obvious until you really think about it is that this front side is just it's just really, really bad. Like it looks cool because it's a new style of card draw, but if you don't have a lot of cards in your hand, it's just horrendous. One thing I was thinking of in Pioneer is, <laughs> you know what we always hate when we play our Seek the Truth decks is when we have Seek the Truth in our hand? This puts it in exile <laughs> for us. We don't oh, have to loot boy. it away. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Yeah, I mean, my first thought was like, okay, so the bonus cards you get from the front side are the cards that were already in your hand, and like you probably would have played them already if they were, if they were relevant. <laughs> but maybe not, you know. Maybe maybe it's that see the truth that's just been stuck on the hand the whole time. But there's lots of decks that play, you know, four Ren and six. So if you say, okay, this card's only really good when Ren six is around, isn't that just a thing that's happening? Yes, but that, that specifically requires Ren to stay in play and for you to have like nothing better to do on turn four. And then you still have to, again, 
people just talk about flipping this like it's just this <laughs> trip to the park. Like <laughs> you have to have a creature with four power. It has to attack and not be blocked and not be killed. Yeah. So I, I agree that the Pyre of the World Tree, the backside, super exciting. The front side is just not good enough. And both halves suck if you're empty handed. Like if you're low on resources, if you're in a top deck war, you will get nothing out of either half. And that's very sad. What if you play the like normal red, red, red enchantment, right? That does two damage to any target. So you use that to like flip your invasion and then you play, your, then you get to use your Pyre of the World Tree for the rest of the lands. Okay, so ran six into Seismic Assaults. Yes. Into Invasion of Kaldheim. Right, flip it right away. That turn. Flip it right away. I, we're out of lands at this point, but maybe we'll draw some more. I'm sure we'll draw some more, right? Well, then I was thinking maybe you can play the uh, the one in a green, uh, get three lands back. Okay, Life from the Loam. We're, Life from the Loam. We're getting so, somewhere. Okay. We discarded that at some point along the way here, or we, or we tried to find it with our Invasion of Kaldheim flip. I mean, you want to love it. It's super exciting to think about, but I just don't think it's going to stand up to muster. On the other hand, the final card we'll talk about in this installment, Invasion of Zendikar, I actually do think is pretty good. It's pretty good. It's three and a green for a siege with three defense, so very little defense. When Invasion of Zendikar enters the battlefield, search your library for up to two basic land cards, put them onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle. So that's an explosive vegetation. On the backside, when you defeat the battle, you get Awakened Skyclave, 4-4 Vigilance Haste Elemental. It taps for a mana of any color, again with Vigilance and Haste, that's cute. And uh, it also counts as a land when it's on the battlefield. So you've added actually three lands at that point between the two basics that you searched up and your 4-4 your creature land that attacks, blocks, and taps for mana. What do you make of this, David? Yeah, so this is the first one that got spoiled when they speculated what this did. You and I were talking about, you know, could it really be if you just do three damage to this, it flips? That seems like really powerful. And they're like, mm -hmm. no, it must be like the number of creatures that attack it or whatever. But of course, the first thing that we thought turned out to be the case. At the time, I said this card seems super powerful. And I think I like it a little less. But first of all, this naturally curves into Atraxa if you just want to hard cast Atraxa. Cast this on four, it finds your hmm. white, it finds your black, whatever. Whichever two colors you're missing. Next turn, you play your seventh land, cast Atraxa. The other one I kind of like with this is if you're playing Ugin, of course, it doesn't get to play it right the next turn, but often we just Ugin and plus. And again, this is an example where the random damage to the opponent doesn't matter. They're probably at a bunch of life. Ugin's going to try to win the game by ultimating or whatever. Plusing to just smoke your own invasion and get the 4-4 is actually kind of interesting to me. Uh, like the Ugin natural plus just hmm. puts a blocker into play. Sometimes bold is better on their creature. Sometimes it'll be better to make the, the blocker, uh, but just to have the option that that seems interesting. Yeah, this is ramps with actual lands. So you could turn on shrine of the forsaken gods um, and you could just go directly to eight, you know, invasion into Ugin. It's kind of intriguing. Another possible home. If we're going to play that Yorian deck, you know, if this, this would maybe have main deck Yorians plus the Yorian companion. You know, you're just going to get all your lands out of your deck pretty quickly with this. And then you get a 4-4. Four -four. Yeah, and you know, the thing about Yorian as well is, yes, it bounces all these things. We keep mentioning that, but it's a 4-mana flyer. So it, it often only takes one attack. And again, Yorian decks do not care about your opponent's life total. 
most of the time you lose to your iron decks by just throwing down. Like, all right, they've blinked their two mana, uh, whatever, trial, and they bounced a, a green enchantment that draws a card. And you're just like, all right, just, I'm kind of done playing. So it doesn't matter what your opponent's life total is at. Like, Urian just kind of renders all that irrelevant. Like, if you can't kill them, it's just, you know, it's, it's just putting more permanence into play. All right. So I think that's it for the four drops, David. Are there any that we're missing that you want to give a shout out to? I do think that Archangel Elspeth's minus two is really powerful. I don't think the card is very good, but I just want people to be aware. Like flying is very, very, very relevant. And the plus two plus two is also very relevant. So like on the prototype creatures, uh, is just something I was thinking of. Archangel Elspeth, two white, white legendary planeswalker for loyalty. Plus one creates a soldier token with lifelink. Minus two, put two plus one plus one counters on target creature, becomes an angel, and gains flying. Minus six, return all non-land permanent cards with mana value three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Yeah, so I'm just imagining like you play the black prototype on three, they play fable or whatever, you archangel, five them in the air, gain five life. That actually just races their turn four shielded like very easily. There's just nothing they can do about it. Uh, if they get too low, they can't take five damage to kill it. So you kind of give them like almost a one turn window to to have the right card. Again, much like all planeswalkers, much worse on the draw versus the play. It does not defend itself very well. Uh, the one one life link token only matters exactly against mono red. Um, okay, yeah, I didn't strike me as a card that was like doing anything uniquely good at a four mana planeswalker slot, but I may be underrating the minus two. That's the only thing I'm even interested in. You might as well just delete the rest of the text. Like, minus two, minus two, get it out of here. <laughs> Put it in the graveyard. Brought back if you want, I guess. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I think we will have to leave it there. Yes. We have a few giant cards left. Maybe we'll come back for them next time, or maybe not. But I think uh, we've covered most of the playables thus far. Yeah, I think so. All right, David. It's been a pleasure. To you as well. Happy brewing. All right. See you next time. All right. Take care. This concludes part three of our Brewer's Guide to March of the Machine. Tune in next time for our top five cards to brew for Modern and Pioneer. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know. Leave us a review in your podcast app and visit patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing to join our Discord community and help support the show. That's all for today. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.